The single most important rule in all nonfiction writing is that you must have a clear thesis statement. Your reader should not have to guess what you, the author, are trying to say. You should tell the reader what you're going to say, then you should say it, and then when you're done, you should tell the reader what you've said. The same is true for preaching, by the way. Whenever I get an opportunity to teach preaching, I always hammer this point home. I tell them, the attentive listener in your congregation should be able to repeat back to you the main point of your sermon in a single sentence, because you, the preacher, should have told them what the main point is at least twice, once at the beginning and once again at the end. The problem, of course, is that a lot of sermons don't seem to have a point. And if they do, the preacher doesn't know what it is. And if the preacher doesn't know what point he's trying to make, how on earth can the congregation be expected to know it? A mist in the pulpit results in a fog in the pews. So as with every good writer, so it is with every good preacher, They should tell their congregation or their reader what point they intend to make, then they should make it, and then they should tell them what point they've made. The Apostle Paul was both a good writer and a good preacher. He knew how to communicate effectively, and that's why before launching into a dense and sometimes difficult theological treatise like Romans, he gives his readers a clear thesis statement. In essence, Paul says, I'm writing to you about the gospel, which he's already told them is his purpose in life, verse 1, as well as his purpose in coming to Rome, verse 15. He says, I want you to know that this gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I want you to know that the gospel is for everyone, for the Jew first and also for the Greek And I want you to know that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it has been written for centuries in the prophets. So not only do verses 16 and 17 transition Paul out of the introduction of this letter, which was verses 1 to 15, and into the main body of the letter, which begins at verse 18, but these verses also set forth the major themes of the letter such as the omnipotent power of God at work in salvation for those who believe, and the place of the Jews in the redemptive plan of God, and the righteousness of God which is revealed in the work of salvation. All of these are dominant themes in the book of Romans that Paul will unpack as he goes on. But before he gets there, he tells them what he's going to say. Romans 1, 16-17 is Paul's thesis statement for the book of Romans. And it's a series of three unfolding propositions, each of which are marked off by the word for. And you can trace this through the text as we walk through it. In verse 15, Paul boldly asserted, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Okay? He's going to provide for that statement a reason or a ground that begins with the word for. 
So someone might ask him, why, Paul? Why do you want to come to Rome and preach the gospel? In one sense, Paul's already answered that question up in verse 14. You notice that at the beginning of verse 15, Paul begins with the word, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, which means that verse 15 is drawing to a close or drawing to a conclusion, something that he said previously. But he knows that what he said previously isn't enough, and so now he's going to give some reasons why he wants to go preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. It's because well, in verse 15, rather, he says this is because he's under obligation to all men to preach the gospel. Okay, someone might respond to that and say, but Paul, Christians die in Rome. Rome is the very seat of worldly power, so why would you want to preach the gospel in a place that is so hostile to Christianity? So Paul says, I'm under obligation to all men to preach the gospel to all men, both cultured and uncultured, Greeks and barbarians, the wise and the foolish. Therefore, so, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why? Why you want to come to Rome? It's dangerous for preachers of the gospel in Rome. Well, it's because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Someone might say, how? How are you not ashamed of a message which the world views as shameful? The world views your gospel as either irrelevant foolishness or else as an imminent threat to the status quo. Answer, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But that doesn't make any sense, someone might say. How does a message about a crucified Jew have any power to save sinners? Answer, because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as Habakkuk wrote that the righteous shall live by faith. Now let me tell you how the gospel reveals God's righteousness. First, I need to tell you about his righteous wrath that is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness, and Paul's off to the races. So do you see how this works? Paul's statement of purpose in verses 16 and 17 is a clear declaration of why he wants to preach the gospel when he gets to Rome, and it also functions as the purpose for his writing the gospel down before he comes to Rome. Why do you want to preach the gospel in Rome? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why are you not ashamed of the gospel? Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, or rather, because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. How is the gospel the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes? Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So three propositions, all beginning with the word for. For, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For, in it the power of God unto salvation is revealed. For, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Those three propositions are going to occupy our attention this morning. We're going to look at all three of them and see what they have to teach us. We're going to look at each of them in depth, in light of the rest of Romans, in order to get a clear picture of what Paul wants to accomplish through this letter. So I told you that all good writing and all good preaching has a clear one-sentence thesis statement. So here's mine. You ready? Romans 1, 16 to 17 contains a summary of the gospel. By unpacking and understanding this summary, 
we can understand the gospel and thereby experience its saving power. That's what we intend to do this morning, to experience the saving power of the gospel, which is, by the way, not just for lost people, it's for believers. It's the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. Do you believe this morning? Then the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for you. So what we're going to do this morning is unpack and attempt to understand this gospel so that we may experience anew and afresh this morning its saving power in our lives. Let's look at the first proposition. In this first proposition, Paul addresses the scandal of the gospel. He boldly declares, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And Paul gives this as the reason why he's eager to preach the gospel in Rome. The Scottish preacher James Stewart once remarked concerning this verse that there's no sense in declaring that you're not ashamed of something unless you've been, attempt, been tempted to feel shame because of it. Well, this is true, and if you've ever evangelized out in the world, you have experienced the same temptation to shame. It's that, it's that sweaty palm feeling that you get when you're about to walk up to somebody with the intent of sharing the gospel with them. It's a temptation to shame, and Paul shuns that temptation. He says, no, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. But Paul wouldn't say such a thing unless he had been tempted to feel that shame. In fact, Paul knew that temptation well. John Stott wrote that Paul told the Corinthians when he came to them, in weakness and fear and with much trembling did he come. He knew that the message of the cross was foolishness to some and a stumbling block to others because it undermines self-righteousness and challenges self-indulgence. So whenever the gospel is faithfully preached, it arouses opposition, often contempt, and sometimes ridicule. There's something about the gospel that naturally produces shame. Jesus knew it, and that's why he had to warn his, gospel, or his disciples not to be ashamed of his words, Mark 8, 38. Paul obviously knew it, and that's why he had to exhort Timothy not to be ashamed of his gospel, 2 Timothy 1.8. Evidently, there's something inherent in this gospel that provokes shame in those who try to share it. What is it? Well, I can name three things, three elements of the gospel that provoke shame in those who attempt to declare it. Number one, the gospel is about the supernatural work of Christ. It's about the incarnate Son of God, crucified, risen, ascended, and returning. And none of that makes any sense to the natural, rational mind, particularly in a post-enlightenment empirical age in which supernatural claims like these are looked upon with great suspicion and scorn. And making these kind of claims in Paul's day was no easier than making them in ours. I want you to imagine walking onto the campus of a place like Berkeley 
and declaring that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and you'll feel something of the embarrassment and shame that Paul would often be tempted to feel. For instance, when he walked onto Mars Hill in Athens, and in the presence of all the Greek philosophers of their day, declared the same thing. Acts 17.32 says that when they, the, the eminent philosophers, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, they mocked Paul. That's why he felt ashamed or was tempted to feel ashamed. But not all of them mocked. To some, the gospel of the resurrection of Christ was the power of God to save. Paul saw it happen. And that's why even though he was tempted to feel shame, he can say, I am not ashamed. Second, the gospel deals with the sin of man. It declares that all men are sinners and are under the wrath of God. It declares that men are not basically good, but are essentially and inherently evil. It declares that man's so-called righteousness is nothing but filthy rags in the sight of a holy and righteous God. And it declares that in his sin, there is nothing that man can do to rectify himself nor to reconcile himself to God. This kind of news does not sit well with sinful man. Man can't, mankind cannot abide it. So if you want to sense something of the shame that Paul was tempted to feel, I want you to imagine walking out into the midst of a gay pride parade and calling everyone there to repentance. Or walking into a mainline Protestant church and telling them that unless they are all born again, they will all perish under God's wrath. That's the sort of thing Paul did all the time. Of course he was tempted to shame. Third, the gospel declares the supremacy of God. Paul's very clear. This is the gospel of God, not the gospel of man. God is the center of the cosmos, not man. God is the one who is infinitely worthy of glory and honor and worship and faith and obedience. And man is commanded to recognize God's supreme worth and to orient his life accordingly. So imagine telling your unbelieving friend or your unbelieving coworker that God's highest aim is the demonstration of his own glory and his supremacy over all things and that if they will make that supremacy their highest aim and their highest joy, they will be saved. But if they do not, they will be everlastingly under his wrath and you will experience something of the shame that Paul was continually tempted to feel. The gospel, in other words, is by its very nature a scandal to the unbelieving world. And when we go out into the world and declare this scandalous gospel, we will be tempted inevitably to shame and to silence. Cuba missionaries, when you step out into your first evangelistic encounter, you will be tempted to shame. Church members who have that person that lives next to you, that coworker who works next, next to you, and you've been thinking about sharing the gospel with them, I want you to know that as soon as you attempt it, you will be tempted to shame. So what are you going to do? How do we overcome this temptation? Well, again, we can learn from the Apostle Paul. Number one, you do not change the gospel so as to remove its offense. 
The moment we change the gospel and we try to preach a gospel that has no offense and that causes no scandal, we've lost the gospel entirely and we've lost its power to save. Second, you don't silence the gospel. Even though the gospel may bring suffering and scorn and persecution. This was Paul's admonition to Timothy when he said, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You may suffer when you try to share this gospel with an unbeliever. They may reject you. They may reject you very publicly, and it may be humiliating. They may do things in order to harm you. You've got to overcome that. There's got to be something in the gospel that outweighs the shame and the desire for self-preservation. Which brings me to number three. You've got to convince yourself by faith and by experience of the power of the gospel. You've got to convince yourself that this gospel is true, that it's powerful to save, that it has saved you, and you need to let that conviction of its saving power outweigh the possible shame and suffering that may come. So that you are enabled to open your mouth and to speak. That's precisely what Paul has done. That's why he follows up his declaration of shamelessness. I'm not ashamed of the gospel with the second proposition. Why are you not ashamed of the gospel? For it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because he had experienced and witnessed its power to save. So what I want to do is I want to unpack the second proposition by asking of it two questions. How does the gospel save and whom does the gospel save? Let's deal with the first one. Another way to ask this question of how the gospel saves is to ask, what is the relationship between the gospel which Paul has defined for us in verses 2 to 6, the power of God and the salvation of sinners. What's the relationship between these three things that make up this verse, these three elements? What's the relationship between the gospel, the power of God, and the salvation of sinners? How do those three elements connect? Well, I'm going to answer that question in first a negative way, and then I'm going to give you the positive answer. In other words, first I'm going to tell you how the gospel doesn't save, and then I'll tell you how it does. The gospel does not save magically. I want to disabuse us of this notion. It's not a magical incantation which, once spoken, automatically saves those who hear. Now, we know this to be true, both by Scripture and by experience. Scripturally, Paul is clear that not everyone who hears the gospel is saved. In fact, Paul's going to devote three entire chapters, Romans 9 through 11, to the problem of Israel's unbelief. He'll say in Romans 10, 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel, even though they've heard. Paul's adamant that their unbelief 
is not a problem with the gospel itself. He'll say in Romans 9, 6, it's not as though the word of God has failed. The same gospel preached to those who are saved was preached to those who are lost. Now, you know this, and you've seen it play out in your experience, maybe in evangelism, maybe on the mission field. You share this gospel with some, and they believe. You share the gospel with others, and they don't. It's the same gospel that you shared, which says that the power unto salvation is not inherent in the gospel itself. If it was, everyone who hears the gospel would be saved. So how is the power of the gospel conveyed to those who believe? The answer is by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, though the gospel does not save magically, it saves, here's a word for you, mediatorially. It saves by acting as a mediator between the power of the Spirit and an unbelieving sinner. The gospel is the is the instrument which connects the power of the Spirit to the sinner such that the sinner believes. The gospel, which is the announcement of the redemption through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the means by which God has chosen to save sinners. I suppose that God could have chosen to save us immediately. In other words, without using a mediator, without mediation. He could have just, I don't know, snapped his fingers and taken away our sins and united us to Christ, but he didn't. He chose to save us by means of a message, an announcement, an announcement proclaimed by human beings, an announcement received by faith. Paul's going to highlight this mediatorial relationship of the gospel In the famous passage of Romans 10, where he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? Answer is, they won't. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? They won't. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? They won't. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Paul elsewhere clarifies this instrumental role of the gospel in salvation. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Why don't you turn there with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. It's just one book over to your right from Romans. Probably about 10 page turns will do it. In 1 Corinthians 1... He shows us where the true power of salvation lies. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You'll notice that Paul's using almost identical language to Romans 1.16. The word of the cross is Paul's Corinthian shorthand for the gospel. The gospel of God concerning his son. The word of the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. In other words, it's not the power of God to everyone. To those who are perishing, the gospel, notice the same gospel, the same words, is not the power of God to save. Rather, it is foolishness and a stumbling block. Paul goes on, look down at verse 21. 
For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. All right, so here Paul goes a step further and he tells us that it is through the gospel that God saves those who believe. So Paul has clarified now the role of the gospel in salvation. Okay, the, the gospel conveys the power of God. It mediates the power of God. And he's clarified the objects of that salvation. It's those who believe. But we still don't have enough un- information to understand how the gospel saves. And Paul knows it, which is why he goes on. There's one further question that needs to be answered in order for us to understand how the gospel saves. Why is it that some, upon hearing the gospel, believe and are saved, and others, upon hearing the same gospel, don't believe and are not saved if it's the same gospel which Paul says is the power of God unto salvation? What makes the difference between those who reject and those who believe? Paul tells us what it is in verse 24. He says that underneath and before our response of faith is the effectual call of God's Spirit. He says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Okay, so Paul says, there's there's two groups that I proclaim the gospel to, and I proclaim the same gospel to each group. To the Jews, I proclaim the gospel of Christ crucified. Some of them regard this gospel as a stumbling block. To the, and some of them regarded as the power of God. To the Greeks, I preach the same gospel of Christ crucified. To some of them, it's heard as foolishness. But to some of them, it's heard as the power of God. What makes the difference in these same groups who come from the same background, who hear the same gospel, but some of them believe and some of them don't? Paul says it's the effectual call of God that opens their eyes to the glory of Christ, opens their eyes to this devastating reality of sin, opens their eyes to the terrifying prospect of God's wrath and judgment, and opens their eyes to the wonders of the atonement of Christ. And they look at the message of the cross that Paul is proclaiming to them, and they say, that is power to save. The call opens their eyes. It's the Spirit who calls through the gospel and people believe and are saved. So how does the gospel save? What is the relationship between the gospel, God's power, and sinners? Donald Whitney in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, gives us an illustration that can help us understand. He says, Preaching the gospel is like walking around in a thunderstorm and handing out lightning rods. You don't know when the lightning is going to strike, but you know what it's going to strike. It's going to strike the lightning rod of the gospel. 
And when it does, that person's lightning rod is going to be charged with the power of God, and he or she is going to believe. In that illustration, the gospel is the lightning rod that that mediates or conveys or conducts the power of God to the sinner. The lightning in that illustration is the power of God. It's the effectual call of the Spirit, which strikes the lightning rod of the gospel and, and sends a thousand megajoules of divine energy through the rod and into the heart of the sinner, awakening them to life and faith. So the gospel in and of itself does not save anyone. It's just a rod of metal. It's just words. But when it is struck by all of the omnipotent power of the Holy Spirit, that lightning rod becomes power. And the person holding that lightning rod, the person hearing that gospel, they're awakened and they're saved. Second question then, whom does the gospel save? We've seen how it saves. It mediates the power of God through the Holy Spirit. Paul answers the second question, whom does it save in two ways? He says, number one, the gospel conveys the saving power of God to believers. And I think Paul here is using the word salvation in its broadest sense, encompassing regeneration and justification to sanctification and glorification. He's saying saying, all of it comes about through the gospel. I think Paul has in mind the whole gamut of God's saving activity. And we've already seen how it is that the gospel, or is through the gospel rather, that God regenerates sinners and awakens faith. But it's also the, through the gospel, or it's also the gospel itself that we believe and are thereby justified. And it's the gospel that we continue to believe and are sanctified and glorified. In other words, we're not just justified by faith in the gospel. We're sanctified by faith in the gospel. We're preserved by faith in the gospel. Sanctification is nothing more and nothing less than living by faith in the promise of God's future grace given to us in the gospel. So the gospel saves believers by initially awakening them from death to life, from unbelief to faith, and the gospel saves believers by continuing to remind them of God's gracious provision of the spirit and of power to to carry them and preserve them to the end. That's why we never move on from the gospel, because the same gospel that regenerated you is the gospel that is going to sanctify you and keep you unto the end. We're in constant need of the energizing power of God, which comes to us through the gospel, which is why week in and week out, I come in here and I hand out lightning rods. And week in and week out, I come in here and I pray for lightning to strike. We, the church, need to be saved all the way. But Paul continues and he says, not only does it save those who believe, it saves all who believe regardless of their race, their culture, or any other distinguishing factor. John Murray said that there's no discrimination arising from race or culture. 
There's no obstacle arising from degradations of sin. Whether, wherever there is faith, there the omnipotence of God is operative unto salvation. This is a law with no exceptions, end quote. Yes, Paul gives priority to the Jews, and there's a reason for that. Reasons that he will explain later on in the letter. It's more than just a historical fact. It's a theological mandate. The gospel is for the Jews first and then for all the Gentiles. In the same vein, though, in, Re- in Romans 2 and 3, Paul's going to say that judgment comes first to the Jews and then the Gentiles. It has to do with the Jews' election, Israel's election before God and their priority in God's redemptive plan and salvation history. So when Jesus sent out his church in the power of the Spirit to preach the gospel to all nations, he commanded them for a reason to go first to Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to all the nations of the earth. The gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Greek, but it's for all the Greeks. So how does the gospel save? Watch this very closely. This is on your bulletin. I want you to get this. This is like my sub-thesis statement. So I've told you what I was going to say, then I said it, now here's me telling you what I've said. How does the gospel save? By mediating the power of God to sinners through the Holy Spirit in the effectual call which awakens them from spiritual death to saving faith in Christ. Furthermore, the gospel continues to mediate the power of God to believers through the Holy Spirit, sanctifying them by faith in the promise of future grace. That's how the gospel saves. Question number two, whom does the gospel save? It saves all who believe. There is a priority given to the Jews, but the gospel is given to all nations, and there is no barrier to Christ based upon race, ethnicity, culture, gender, age, or degree of sinfulness. All who believe experience the power of God unto salvation. There's one final proposition that Paul deals with, and it's the theme of the gospel. Why is Paul eager to preach the gospel in Rome? Because he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Finally then, why is the gospel the power of God unto salvation? Because, or for, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, I knew going into this message that we had some work to do this morning, because while this is a thesis statement, it's a dense thesis statement, and it needs to be unpacked in order to be understood. It's not going to be understood unless it's unpacked, and unless it's unpacked and understood, we won't experience the power of God unto salvation. So bear with me. I need to unpack three things in verse 17. Number one, we need to answer the question of how the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Number two, we need to answer the question of what does from faith for faith mean. And number three, 
We need to answer how does Habakkuk 2.4 support Paul's argument? Why does he bring it in there? Because it seems to come in out of nowhere. So let's deal with these three questions. First, Paul says unequivocally that the gospel is the power of God because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Now what, what does that mean? Well, there's basically three ways, I think, that the righteousness of God could be understood. First, it could be understood as a divine attribute. In other words, in this sense, Paul would be saying that the the gospel reveals the righteousness of God in telling us that God acts righteously. God acts righteously in looking upon those who are righteous and saying, you're righteous, and rewarding their righteousness as such. And God looks upon the unrighteous, declares them to be unrighteous, and punishes their unrighteousness as such. That's what a righteous judge does. He calls righteousness, righteousness. He calls unrighteousness, unrighteousness. He rewards righteousness, and he punishes unrighteousness. The problem is, how is that good news for unrighteous sinners? It's true But how is it good news for those of us who are unrighteous, which is exactly what Paul is going to establish over the next two chapters? So I don't think the first in and of itself is sufficient to explain what Paul means. So there's a second. The righteousness of God understood as a status which is given by God. In this case, the righteousness of God would be synonymous with justification, the justification of God, the justifying grace of God, the righteousness of God, which is not our own, but which God gives us in order that we may be justified in his sight. This was of crucial importance to Martin Luther. Luther originally understood this phrase, The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel in the first sense. And that's why he spent 10 years of his life in such utter terror. He knew he was unrighteous, and so the righteousness of God being revealed was not good news to him. It terrified him. Until the night of his evangelical conversion, when suddenly he understood that the righteousness of God is not that righteousness by which God judges and condemns the wicked, but is that righteousness by which God gives righteousness to those who believe, by which he justifies them. In other words, he understood that the righteousness of God being revealed was not a declaration of judgment, but it was a declaration of justification. There's a third way that we could understand this. The righteousness of God is a saving activity of God. It's the way it is used so often in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms and Isaiah, where the phrase the righteousness of God is synonymous with God's saving action. When when God throughout the Psalms and the prophets, he says, I'm going to act in my righteousness. He means I'm going to save my people. I'm going to act faithfully to my covenant which I've made with my people. So I'm going to act righteously with regard to my own faithfulness. Now my opinion is that Paul has all three senses in mind. And that all three are tied together by the cross of Christ, which for Paul was the focal point of the gospel. 
All right, so watch this very closely. I want, if you get this, you get the gospel. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God in the first sense, meaning that God will not act unrighteously in a way that is contradictory to his righteous character and name. In other words, the gospel reveals God's righteous judgment. That's true. Romans 2.16, Paul will say that there is coming a day when according to his gospel, God will judge the thoughts and intentions of men through Christ Jesus. Second, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God in that God gives righteousness to those who believe in order that they may be justified in his sight. In other words, the gospel declares God's righteous justification. And thirdly, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, meaning that God has acted in faithfulness to bring these first two senses together in a way that does not violate his righteousness, that is, through the cross of his Son. In other words, the gospel answers the question of how God could be just, the first sense, and the justifier, the second sense, of the one who has faith in Jesus. And according to Paul in Romans 3.25, God did that by putting forth his son to be a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The cross is the demonstration of God's righteousness in that God does not save sinners in a way that violates his own righteous character. But God has saved sinners in a way that upholds his righteousness by taking his righteous son, putting him in the place of unrighteous sinners, pouring out his righteous judgment upon Christ, and giving Christ's righteousness to them by faith. So that God has done that which is righteous. He's looked upon righteousness and he has rewarded it. And he's looked upon unrighteousness and he has punished it. The only thing that's different is that there has been an exchange. Christ has taken our place, and God has acted righteously towards us as if we were righteous as Jesus. And he's dealt righteously with Jesus as if Jesus were as sinful as us. That's the core of the gospel. To put it in one statement then, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God by revealing God's righteous judgment and God's righteous justification through the atoning death of God's righteous Son. If you understand that, your life will transform. Your guilt will be taken away. Joy and assurance and confidence and glory will be yours. Second question then. What does Paul mean by for, from faith, for faith? Or some translations have from faith to faith. Well, wouldn't we like to know? Rance asked me on Wednesday night in our class, you know, there's this, there's this phrase in Romans 1.17 that has always troubled me. And I said, Rance, I want you to hold off until Sunday and I'm going to not answer that question on Sunday. Because... In church history, there have been no less than seven frequent interpretations of that strange phrase. The early church fathers thought that it meant from faith in the law to faith in the gospel. It's probably not right. 
Augustine thought that it meant from the faith of the one who preaches to the faith of the one who hears and believes. That's probably not right. Calvin thought that it meant from the believer's standpoint, from lesser faith when he first hears the gospel to greater faith as he continues to hear the gospel. There may be something to that, but I don't think that's what Paul meant. Karl Barth, who's usually wrong about things in Romans, said that from God's faithfulness to the Christian's faith. That's true, but that's not what Paul means. John Murray said that the righteousness of God is received through faith and is for all who believe to faith. Uh, That's true. That's just not what Paul says. The faithfulness of Christ to the faith of the believer is another interpretation that's based on an alternate reading of Romans 3.22. And then a lot of people think that it means by faith and only by faith, or by faith and faith alone. Uh, That's Douglas Moo's view, C.K. Barrett, Cranfield, and others. There's another view, however, that accords with the only other time that this strange Greek construction occurs, and that's in 2 Corinthians 2.16, where Paul says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance, and here it comes, from death to death, and to the other the aroma of from life to life. It's the only other place in the Bible that that phrase is utilized. And so, the from to construction seems to express range, duration, source, destination, and the like. What does all this mean? Well, the best that I can determine, and I spent a while on this, the best that I can determine what Paul means by from, from faith to faith is something like entirely by faith or from faith from first to last. Now, some of these views are rather close to one another, which gives credence to the idea that what Paul means is that in the gospel, the righteousness of God that's God's saving activity and justifying sinners in such a way that it demonstrates his righteousness, is, and here's three words that I use to help us understand, the declaration of God's righteousness revealed in the gospel is received by faith, or I'm sorry, is revealed by faith, is received by faith, and is remained in by faith. In other words, there is never a time when you will move on from faith to works. You hear the gospel by faith. You believe the gospel by faith. You keep believing the gospel by faith. That's how the gospel saves you from the time that you are a dead corpse of a man to the time when you are born again, raised to new life in Christ, to the time when you are a new Christian trying to figure this whole thing out, to the time when you've been established in the faith for years and you're leading other people to faith. At no point in that progression is faith unnecessary. From first to last. One final question with this we'll end. How is Habakkuk 2.4 pertinent to Paul's point? Habakkuk 2.4 says, The righteous shall live by faith. What does that add to the argument? Well, first, it should be mentioned that there's some disagreement as to how this should be translated. Your Bible will probably have a footnote down there that will say, or 
the one who is righteous by faith shall live. I think that's actually the better way to translate this. In the end, however, it doesn't make much difference because righteousness by faith and living by faith are both emphases of Paul. Uh, If pushed, however, I'd go for the latter. I think what Paul means is that the by faith is how we are righteous, not necessarily how we live. Now, of course, he knows that we live by faith. He's just said that. But I would prefer those who are righteous. The righteous by faith shall live. Now, how does Habakkuk 2.4 bolster Paul's argument? Well, who is Habakkuk? Habakkuk was a prophet who wrote sometime between the fall of Nineveh, uh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, um, in 612 B.C., and the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in 587 B.C. So we don't really know, but Habakkuk is, is ministering sometime between 612 and 587. And it's not a very happy time in Israel. Uh, there are problems within, and there are dangers without. This prophet has watched the precipitous decline of Israel from the reforms of the early days of King Josiah all the way to the present crisis in the impending Babylonian invasion. He's sitting on the walls of Jerusalem and he's watching, metaphorically speaking, Babylon conquering the entire known world. And he knows, because he's a smart man, that they're coming for Israel. And Israel is in absolute decay and decadency and has absolutely no strength to withhold them. In other words, he sees Israel's imminent downfall. And it's in that context that Habakkuk cries out to the Lord for answers. But he doesn't start with outside Like all good prophets of God, he begins with the household of God. And so he cries out, lamenting the wickedness of his own people. Habakkuk 1, 1 1-4 is Habakkuk saying, O Lord, how wicked is Israel. And the Lord responds by saying, I know. That's why I'm bringing the Babylonians to judge them. Well, this sets Habakkuk off. Because Habakkuk is now even more disturbed than he was before. Why would God use a nation more wicked than Israel to judge Israel? How does that fit with God's righteousness? The Lord's answer to Habakkuk is very simple. The righteous one shall live by faith. Now I want you to notice how this supports Paul's argument. In Habakkuk, God is using the Babylonians to judge the wicked, both the wicked among all the nations, the Greeks, and the wicked among his own people, the Jews. In other words, the context of Habakkuk 2.4 is the imminent revelation of the wrath of God against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, both the Gentiles and the Jews. Does that sound familiar? Yes, Pastor Tim, that sounds familiar. Because that's the very same context of Paul's gospel in Romans. That's what he's getting ready to say next week. Paul is about to spend two chapters demonstrating how the wrath of God is being revealed against all people, Jew and Gentile. Well, what was God's answer to Habakkuk in the face of this imminent wrath? The one who is righteous by faith will live. They will be saved from the wrath of God. 
Well, what's Paul's answer in Romans as to how people will be spared from the wrath of God? The righteous shall live by faith. Those who are righteous by faith shall be saved from God's wrath. Listen to what he's going to say in chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, like Habakkuk, bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Jew, Gentile, Israelite, Babylonian, there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. This was to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over those sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that God would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Beloved, the wrath of God is coming. It is coming both in the preaching of next week and the weeks to come, and it is coming in its full reality. And Paul was like Habakkuk sitting on the watchtower, watching the tide of judgment come rolling in. And God spoke to Paul just like he'd spoke it to Habakkuk, saying, the one who is righteous by faith shall live, that is, shall be saved from my coming wrath. And now Paul is trumpeting that message to the church just as Habakkuk did to Israel before the wrath was poured out. Can you hear Paul's cry? The wrath of God is coming. Listen to me. The wrath of God is coming. It begins in the very next verse. But there is a way of escape. There is a way of deliverance. There is a way of salvation from that coming judgment. And Paul wants you to know what it is before he declares God's coming wrath. That way of salvation is an alien righteousness. A righteousness that is not inherent in us, but is outside of us. A righteousness that is not our own. A righteousness that is given to us by a righteous God through the righteous work of his righteous son and is revealed by faith alone. Entering into this righteousness, receiving this righteousness is like clothing yourself in a flame-retardant robe that will preserve you safe through the coming wrath and the coming fires of judgment. If you do not have this robe of righteousness, both Habakkuk and Paul and me want you to know that you will not be saved. But there is a way of deliverance. You can have this flame-retardant righteousness, and you can have it freely, not by works, but by faith. From faith to faith. From faith first to last. Entirely by faith. All you've got to do is embrace it. That's the message of Romans. Wrath is coming Righteousness is provided, and you can have it by 
faith. Do you have it? You can because it is for all who believe. All of God's omnipotent power at work in the redeeming, salvific efforts of his son will be applied to you if you believe. And it's for all who believe, which means that there is no distinction of race, culture, intellectual ability, socioeconomic level, or perhaps most importantly for our congregation, degradation of sin. That means that no matter what you've done, who you are, how long you've been mired in the filth of iniquity, God's omnipotent saving power is sufficient to cleanse you and clothe you. There is no distinction. And you can have it. You can have this righteousness. And you can pass unscathed through the coming wrath. Will you have it?